Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, January 19th, 2024. In today's weather outlook, we have snow forecasted. Highs will be in the low 30s. Tonight, it will dip down to almost 17 degrees. We'll have a little more snow, and it will be cloudy. On Saturday and Sunday, the sun will come out. Highs on Saturday will be in the 20s. They'll get up to 30 on Sunday. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. In Thursday's midday drawing for the numbers game, we have numbers 4, 3, 9, and 5. The evening drawing numbers were 4, 1, 5, and 6. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were 4, 5, 11, 13, and 30. For Wednesday's Powerball drawing, we have numbers 18, 22, 43, 61, 65, and the extra ball of 2. And finally, for Mega Millions on Tuesday, we have numbers 2, 10, 42, 49, 54, and the extra ball of 13. The lead story on page 1 of today's newspaper is headlined, Economic Boon, Lower Price, Born Rail Trail, No Track Design Touted, by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. A bike trail using old railroad lines to span the length of the entire Cape, connecting the Cape Cod Canal to Woods Hole and Provincetown, has long been a vision for many regional stakeholders, part-timers, year-round residents, and government officials alike. Certain sections have been filled in, but some critical gaps remain. Wellfleet to Provincetown, a section through Barnstable, and perhaps most notably, a gap stretching through Bourne connecting the canal to North Falmouth along the Falmouth Secondary Rail Line, what would be known as the Bourne Rail Trail. Thomas Cahir, Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority Administrator, said the project aims for a rail-to-trail option, removing the Falmouth Secondary Railroad tracks and building a bike path in its place. The proposal is pending authorization from Governor Maura Healey's office, Kahir said, with $20 million of federal funding made available through the Regional Transit Authority. We identified $20 million to offer up if we could be assured that we could get it done in a timely fashion, five to six years, as opposed to 50 years, and that we take the tracks out, said Kahir, a longtime supporter of train and rail initiatives, because you can't do rail with trail. Future of the Rail-to-Trail Plan Despite support from Bourne officials and residents' opposition to the proposal from Mashpee, Falmouth, and stakeholders of the Falmouth Secondary Line, as well as an expiration date on the federal funds, have put the future of the project in a precarious position. I just firmly believe, which is completely uncharacteristic of my life, in terms of rail, that the benefits of the Bourne Rail Trail are just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Kahir said, and if it doesn't happen now, it never will. What are the costs? The money was made available to the Regional Transit Authority through the American Rescue Plan Act via a formula that factored in road miles and route miles from the Woods Hole, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket Steamship Authority, said Transit Authority Chief Financial Officer Henry Swanarski. Funding is based upon reporting to the National Transit Database by incorporating the Steamship Authority reporting, 
both a combination of their ridership and really what they call direct route miles, Swinarski said. Kahir said they have until September to commit the money to the rail-to-trail Bourne Rail Trail proposal. Ken Chetland, president of the Friends of the Bourne Rail Trail, said the alternative option of building a bike path alongside the rail line, the so-called rail-with-trail option, would be more expensive, time-consuming, and would require taking private land to accommodate the extra space needed to fit a path beside the track. The estimate on Rail with Trail show, based on design work to date, so far is north of $80 million, whereas we can build the Rail to Trail for $20 million, Chetland said. The Rail with Trail option means 11 new bridges would need to be built, requiring environmental permits that would take years to obtain, he said. No design money spent on Rail to Trail. Chetland said no money has been spent on the Rail to Trail project as of now, including design, because advocates have yet to receive approval to remove the tracks. But, he said, once approval comes through, the project will move quickly. We haven't lit fires because the plan is, as soon as we get the green light for removal of the track, we will immediately start Rail to Trail design work, Chetland said. We'll have the money to whatever extent we need money quickly. There's a high degree of confidence in our ability to fundraise once it's a rail-to-trail project. The proposed six-and-a-half-mile bike path would run north and south parallel to the Buzzards Bay coastline and is part of a Cape Cod Commission project called Vision 88, an initiative that aims to connect a network of 88 miles of multi-use paths and bike trails spanning the entire Cape, from Woods Hole to Provincetown. That connectivity of that rail line would be such an economic boom, not only for the Upper Cape, but for the entire Cape, Cahir said. Rail with Trail and Railroad Stakeholders The Falmouth Secondary Line, owned by the Massachusetts Department of Transportation, terminates at a waste disposal site at the Upper Cape Regional Transfer Station. The site is within Joint Base Cape Cod and is leased and operated by Cavosa Disposal Corporation. The Massachusetts Coastal Railroad, a rail network of nearly 60 miles from Fall River to Hyannis, operates on the track hauling construction and demolition waste from the Upper Cape Transfer Station to a site off Cape about once or twice a week. Carl Cavosa, owner of Cavosa Disposal, said the track serves as a vital link for his business. He said removing the tracks would hurt his ability to transport waste off Cape and interrupt his plans to build his own transportation on property he owns. If you owned a piece of property where you operate your business and I came to you and I said, hey, I'm going to rip up the road that goes to your piece of land. Wouldn't you put up a fight? Cavosa said. This is my business. This is my livelihood. Whedon given pre-trial probation for theft of museum item by Zane Razek of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline, Plymouth. Mashpee Wampanoag Tribal Chairman Brian M. Whedon received a one-year pre-trial probation to resolve charges related to the reported theft of items from the Plymouth Pawtuxet Museums in November 2022. Whedon, age 31, of Mashpee, has agreed to cooperate with court procedures and investigations of anyone else charged or investigated in connection with the incident and testify as may be required, according to a December 19th plea deal at Plymouth District Court. He must also obey all local, state, and federal laws and court orders. 
notify the probation department immediately if he changes his residence, mailing address, or contact information, and make no false statements to any officer of the court. The pretrial probation ends December 17th, at which time the charges will be dismissed. Whedon did not immediately return a phone call seeking comment. Daniel Marks, a lawyer representing Whedon, could also not be reached for comment. What are the charges Whedon faces? Whedon was charged with breaking and entering into a building in the nighttime to commit a felony and larceny over $1,200. He pleaded not guilty in January. Philip C. Hicks, Jr., 31, of Mashpee, faces the same charges and is scheduled to appear in Plymouth District Court on February 13th for a pretrial hearing. Both men were identified as suspects after an investigation by Plymouth Police. Plymouth Pawtuxet Museum staff noticed November 7, 2022, that four items were missing from a wetu, a traditional domed Wampanoag dwelling in the Native American site area. Two hand-woven bulrush mats and two black bearskins were gone, according to the Plymouth Police report. Security footage showed a dark car, described as a Chevrolet Traverse or Equinox, carrying four people pulled into the employee parking lot around 2 a.m. on November 7, 2022, according to the report. Three people got out and walked toward the exhibits. They returned about 18 minutes later, carrying what appeared to be the reported missing items. On December 1, 2022, Plymouth Police received a box containing two bearskin rugs and two woven mats. A museum official confirmed to police the items were the ones taken from the exhibit and said they appeared undamaged. The incident comes months after the Wampanoag tribe severed ties with Plymouth Pawtuxet Museums, citing the direction of its programs and approach to Native American history. In 2021, Whedon, then 28, became the youngest person elected chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Massachusetts gas prices fell, but Orleans is nearly $4 a gallon. By Osgood Terzoglu and Denise Coffey of the USA Today Network. State gas prices fell for the second consecutive week and reached an average of $3.08 per gallon of regular fuel on Monday down from last week's price of $3.14 per gallon, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Prices were as low as $2.83 per gallon on the mainland side of the Cape's bridges, according to Gas Buddy. Sitgo and Shell gas stations on Main Street and the Scenic Highway posted the lowest prices on Cape Cod, but travel over the Bourne Bridge to the mobile station on MacArthur Boulevard and the price rose to $3.11 per gallon. The farther out drivers go, the higher the price. Just over the bridge and eight miles into Sandwich saw gas prices rise to $3.15 per gallon. Orleans prices ran $3.90 per gallon at three different gas stations about 43 miles east of Bourne. And Provincetown, at the very tip of the Cape, some 67 miles out, had prices at $3.49 per gallon. Hyannis prices were comparable to Bourne's. The so-called hub of the Cape, a 20-mile ride from the bridges, had prices ranging from $2.85 per gallon at BJ's to $3.12 per gallon at Cumberland Farms on Barnstable Road. The station information and gas prices on GasBuddy are primarily entered by drivers. 
The average fuel price in state has fallen about 11 cents since last month. According to the EIA, gas prices across the state in the last year have been as low as $3.08 on January 15th and as high as $3.76 on August 7, 2023. A year ago, the average gas price in Massachusetts was 6% higher at $3.26 per gallon. The average gas price in the U.S. last week was 306, making prices in the state about 0.6% higher than the nation's average. The average national gas price is down from last week's average of $3.07 per gallon. The USA Today Network is publishing localized versions of this story on its news sites across the country, generated with data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Governor Healy paints rosy picture in State of Commonwealth speech, Laud's Tax Cuts, by Kinga Barandi of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Dateline, Boston. In her State of the Commonwealth speech before a joint session of the House and Senate Wednesday, Governor Maura T. Healy leaned heavily on her past accomplishments and her future plans to create a more affordable, competitive, and equitable Massachusetts. Behind every decision we make is a person a student, a family, a small business owner, a senior. That's who we work for, Hilly declared in her opening remarks. She highlighted the declaration by introducing Massachusetts residents from throughout the state. Deerfield potato farmers, Lisa and Jay Savage, who suffered major crop losses in the devastating floods that hit Massachusetts in 2023. Danita Menz, a Roxbury mother benefiting from Mass Reconnect, the governor's program offering free community college to all residents over 25 who do not have a prior degree. Abelardo and Gabriella, Haverhill residents who had despaired of finding affordable housing to purchase in the state until they were connected to state programs that allowed them to realize their dreams. Elaine Correa from New Bedford, an 87-year-old grandmother who has faced tough financial decisions, such as having to choose between gifts for her nine grandchildren, groceries, or paying the heating bill. Healy thanked the legislature for collaboration in passing tax cuts, for including universal free meals for Massachusetts public school students into the annual budget, for funding emergency disaster relief for farmers hard hit by climate emergencies, and to help fund the rebuilding of central Massachusetts communities after flash floods in September washed away roads, bridges, and people's yards. Discussing the weather-related disasters and climate change, Healy applauded the initiative of Senator Joe Comerford, a Democrat from Northampton, and Representative Natalie Blaze, a Democrat from Deerfield, to create a permanent disaster relief fund so that Massachusetts residents, businesses, and municipalities do not have to rely on the federal government. In her remarks, Healy failed to mention the six months of dismal tax revenue that fell short of expectations and triggered a $350 million cut to the budget, mostly to social service programs and mental health care services. The state will also seek some $700 million, diverting interest payments from investments to plug gaps in the budget. In discussing the influx of migrants and the subsequent strain on the state's emergency shelter system, Healy did not mention the shortfall in funding, which had been set to support half the current 7,500 families lodged in emergency shelters through June 2024. The legislature has since allocated another $250 million to the system. 
Healy also plans to dip into a special escrow fund and take $700 million to subsidize the program through the end of the fiscal year. Instead, she talked about her success working with the federal government in obtaining working papers for 3,000 new Massachusetts residents and finding employment for some of those able to work. Some Massachusetts legislators have suggested the state's right to shelter law be revised to limit those eligible for the program to Massachusetts residents and citizens of the United States. Senator Peter Durant gives Republican response. In remarks billed as the Republican response to Healy's address, newly elected Senator Peter Durant, Republican from Spencer, said the right to shelter law is being exploited. You are bearing the economic burden, Durant said, speaking to state taxpayers. We must work together to amend the right to shelter law to carry out the mission it was intended to 40 years ago when it was written, to serve residents of the Commonwealth with emergency housing when they find themselves in distress. Without action, our state will continue to be a magnet for an influx of migrants with far-reaching consequences that will impact you and future generations. Durant called for education reform, expanded investments in vocational education, a streamlined process to build new housing, increased use of natural gas to contain costs during the state's clean energy push, and strategies to ease burdens on middle-income residents who are forced to leave Massachusetts due to affordability woes. Healy's Priorities for 2024 The governor announced new initiatives a $4 billion housing bond bill, and literary launch, a program to ensure that each of Massachusetts's 351 school districts has access to the best reading material, incorporating it over the next five years. She said her fiscal 2025 state budget will propose to double our support for MBTA operations and tackle deferred maintenance, plus establish a permanent reduced fare for low-income T-riders. Neither Healy nor administration officials put specific figures on her proposed MBTA investments, but those commitments are likely to cost to tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. The governor also pledged to increase funding for local roads and bridges to record levels, with special investments dedicated to rural communities and convene a task force to rethink long-term transportation financing questions in the clean energy era. She also called for investing in education, lowering childcare costs, and working with the state's vocational schools to support apprenticeships, internships, and certificate programs offered through community colleges. Tuesday, Healy toured a childcare center in Malden, taking the opportunity to announce her Gateway to Pre-K program, designed to lower out-of-pocket childcare costs and establish universal pre-K in all 26 of Massachusetts's Gateway cities. Following her remarks, Brad Jones, a Republican from North Reading, ranking House Minority Leader, pointed out that universal pre-K for gateway cities is aspirational and suggested that Massachusetts implement full-day kindergarten statewide before seeking to implement pre-K. Other residents in the Commonwealth may need access to the same programs. Maybe they should be income-based rather than concentrated in the gateway communities, he said. The ambitious goals laid out by the governor do not jibe with the recent 9C cuts to the budget, Jones said, also pointing out that her proposed spending would come on the heels of the $1 billion in tax cuts offered by the governor and enacted by the legislature.
In her speech, the governor promised continued full funding of the Student Opportunity Act and investments in early college programs and mental health services for the state's youth. She touted the state's response to concerns about youth mental health, including opening 26 community mental health centers and cutting emergency room stays for youth in crisis in half. That's a real impact, Healy said, adding her next budget will include $10 million to provide services, including residential, for the state's most vulnerable youth. The governor touted the creation of the Federal Funds and Infrastructure Office and the use of interest accrued from the $8 billion rainy day fund to chase every federal dollar available in grants and loans. That effort, Healy said, has already borne fruit, attracting $3 billion to build projects, $108 million for the West-East Rail through Worcester, $24 million to rebuild Leonard's Wharf in New Bedford, $33 million for electric school buses, and $372 million to finally start the replacement of Cape Cod bridges. Massachusetts will become, Healy vowed, the national leader in life sciences and a climate change innovator with its investment in offshore wind electricity generation, investment in electric bus fleets, and a push to get more motorists in electric vehicles. We set high goals for our first year in office, Healy said. And because we came together and we acted with urgency, we delivered results and we met every one of our goals. Today, Massachusetts is more affordable, more competitive, and more equitable than it was a year ago. And the state of our commonwealth, like the spirit of our people, is stronger than ever. Legislative leaders rule out tax hikes. Asked if he would consider proposals to raise taxes to pay for lofty spending promises with fiscal storm clouds gathering, House Speaker Ron Mariano said life goes on and pointed to a tax cut package lawmakers and Healy passed last year. No, we're not going to raise taxes. We just lowered taxes. We're not schizophrenic, the Speaker said. We've chosen the course of action, and we think the competitiveness that the tax cut gets us is an important fact. Mariano praised last year's tax reforms, which figured prominently into Healy's speech, saying they'll go a long way to make living in Massachusetts more affordable. Senate President Karen Spilka also said her chamber is not considering raising taxes. That's not something that I believe we're looking at. I believe, you know, that we'll take a look and closely monitor our revenue for the coming months, for the coming year, and we'll take a look. We'll take a look at the governor's budget, and then the House will do its budget, and we'll do ours. But we will closely monitor our revenue, Spilka said. The state budget has ballooned in recent years, in line with a surge in tax collections since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. The budget in fiscal 2020 was slightly above $43 billion, compared to the $56 billion fiscal 2024 budget. Just before the pandemic hit in 2020, the House approved a package of tax and fee increases to increase funding for the MBTA and transportation projects. The Senate didn't take up the bill, and then Beacon Hill's priorities shifted to addressing the pandemic. Wednesday night, Healy proposed doubling support for MBTA operations and addressing deferred maintenance on the system that has become increasingly unreliable and unsafe in the time since. However, without raising taxes and with less general tax revenue to spend in the next budget than was originally appropriated for fiscal 2024, 
When asked how the state would afford Democrats spending priorities, both Mariano and Spilka said they look forward to seeing the details of Healy's budget proposal. Red Sox Prospects Take in Fenway Park by Tommy Cassell of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, Dateline, Boston. Some of the top prospects in the Boston Red Sox organization were at Fenway Park Wednesday afternoon. Infielders Vaughn Grissom, Marcelo Mayer, Chase Medroth, and Nick York. Outfielder Roman Anthony. Catchers Nathan Hickey and Kyle Teal. And right-handed pitchers Isaiah Campbell, Richard Fitz, Wickelman Gonzalez, Luis Perales, and Justin Slayton participated in the club's rookie development program that's designed to focus on the assimilation into major league life on and off the field. For over an hour, 12 of Boston's up-and-coming prospects met with media members inside the Red Sox clubhouse. All the guys in here were all super close, Anthony, age 19, said. We all want to win, and we all have the same end goal. But it's awesome being in Boston itself. Being here makes it feel that much more real, and seeing Fenway Park makes it super motivating. A day before the club's rookie development program media availability, Anthony, Mayer, and York took in the scene of flurries at Fenway Park. For California natives like Mayer and York, it was their first time seeing snowfall. Welcome to Boston! Just the walk back from here to the hotel, I almost slipped four or five times because I've never had to deal with ice on the sidewalk before, York, age 21, said, so it's super new to me. I woke up in the morning, and I looked out my window as I usually do, and I saw snow everywhere and was like, this is crazy, Mayor, age 21, said. It was awesome. I was making snowballs, all that little kid stuff, enjoying the snow, but yeah, it was cool. In the latest top 100 prospect list released by Baseball America, Mayer, number 14, Anthony, number 21, and Teal, number 62, come in as the highest ranked names for the Red Sox. The three prospects recently were mentioned by new Red Sox Chief Baseball Officer Craig Breslow in an interview with Peter Abraham of the Boston Globe about the state of the organization. The reality is that it's going to require a step forward from the young position players. It's going to require the build-out of a talent pipeline of arms that we can acquire, we draft, and we can develop internally, Breslow told The Globe. And it's going to require aggressive player development in the minor leagues and the major leagues, so guys that we think are the next wave, Mayer and Anthony and Teal, that group, are not just big leaguers, but impact big leaguers. Last year, the left-handed hitting mayor batted 236 with 43 runs, 19 doubles, 13 home runs, 54 RBIs, and 32 walks in 78 games between High A Greenville, 35 games, and Double A Portland, 43 games, making 70 starts at shortstop and one at third base. Mayer was selected to play in the Syriac's Serious XM All-Star Future Games at T-Mobile Park in Seattle before his season ended in August due to a left shoulder injury. But the former number four overall pick from the 2021 draft is optimistic heading into the 2024 season. I feel great, Mayer said. My shoulder is in a good spot. I've been swinging it, so there's no pain there right now. Just excited to start the year healthy and get going. Ranked the number two prospect in the Red Sox organization by Baseball America and MLB.com, 
Anthony was named the 2023 Red Sox Minor League Offensive Player of the Year after the left-handed hitter batted 278 with 27 doubles, four triples, 14 home runs, and an 869 OPS with Class A Salem, High A Greenville, and Double A Portland. The second-round selection from the 2022 draft made 68 starts in center field, 18 in right field, one in left field, and 19 as the designated hitter. Now that I have kind of an idea of what I'm getting into going into the year, I thought I got a little taste of everywhere that I was at last year. I think that helped a lot, Anthony said. But the goal remains the same, just to get better every day and be where my feet are at each day and try to learn as much as I can. We've reached the halfway point of our program and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Michelle Shelley Murray. Dateline Mashpee. With heavy hearts, we announce the passing of our beloved mother, sister, grandmother, and aunt. Shelley was predeceased by her mother, Doris M. Hallett, and father, Robert W. Weaver. She is survived by her sons, Terry, Christopher, and Stephen, her treasured grandchildren, and her brother, Stephen, and his son, Benjamin. Shelley was a native Cape Codder and enjoyed her life on the Cape. She worked as a caring home health professional until her retirement. She had fond memories of her vacation in the mountains of New Hampshire. She will be missed by those who loved her and live in our hearts and memories. The family is planning a celebration of life at a later date. Jacqueline Camo, Dateline Mashpee. Jacqueline Ann Camo, age 82, of Mashpee, formerly of Nova Scotia, Canada, passed away peacefully at home on January 4th. She was the beloved wife of the late Albert Camo and the daughter of the late Lloyd and Margaret Phipps. Jacqueline graduated from public schools in Canada. She also received her nursing degree in Windsor, Nova Scotia. She worked as a nurse in Falmouth for many years until her retirement. She was an avid sports fan and enjoyed watching the Boston Bruins and New England Patriots. She also loved painting and needlepoint. Most of all, she enjoyed spending time with her family. She was a loving mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother and will be dearly missed by all who loved her. Jacqueline is survived by her son, Harry, her sister, Debbie, five grandchildren, a great-grandchild, and many nieces and nephews. A private burial service will be held at a later date at the Massachusetts National Cemetery, where she will join her husband. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation. For the online guest book, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Raymond E. Berlin, Dateline Centerville. Raymond E. Berlin of Centerville died peacefully on January 12th. He was the beloved husband of the late Elaine Bartran Berlin, with whom he shared 62 years of marriage. Raymond was born December 15, 1922, to the late Edwin Berlin and Esther Erickson Berlin in New Haven, Connecticut. He had a lengthy career as a claims examiner for the Hartford Insurance Group for many years until his retirement. Raymond had a passion for cars and owned 126 cars throughout his life. 
He was an avid Boston sports fan, especially the Patriots and Red Sox, and loved his scratch tickets, always hoping to win big. More than anything, Raymond is remembered as a loving father, uncle, and friend, and will be greatly missed by all who had the pleasure of knowing him. Raymond is survived by his daughter, his nephew, as well as his granddogs. Raymond extends many thanks. Raymond's family extends many thanks to the staff of Cape Regency Rehabilitation and Healthcare Center for their care and devotion taking care of Raymond. A graveside service will be held on Friday, January 26th at 11.15 at the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. In lieu of flowers, donations in Raymond's memory can be made to Cape Regency Rehabilitation and Healthcare Center on South Main Street in Centerville. For the online guestbook and directions, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Eleanor Ruth Stano Sussdorf, Dateline Barnstable. Eleanor Ruth Stano Sussdorf of Barnstable, formerly of Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, died peacefully at home on January 15th at the age of 94. She was the wife of the late Dieter H. Sussdorf, daughter of the late Joseph and Susan Milan Stano, and the mother of Claudia Sussdorf of Cumaquid, Wendy Piers of Wareham, and Ellen Mass of Colbert, Connecticut. In addition to her daughters, she is survived by her brother and sister-in-law, five grandchildren, and many other family members. She is predeceased by five siblings. Eleanor was born the daughter of Czech immigrants on December 1, 1929 in Sharon, Pennsylvania. Eleanor graduated from Hickory High School, earning a full scholarship to attend the University of Chicago. A lover of books, her first job was with the educational publishing company, Scott Forsman. In 1954, she met her husband, Dieter, then a PhD student at the University of Chicago. In 1959, she gave birth to twin daughters, Claudia and Wendy. They later moved to Arcadia, California and Rockville, Maryland before settling in Hastings-on-Hudson, where her youngest daughter, Ellen, was born. Ellie worked full-time at the Hastings High School Library and later as a substitute teacher. She was a voracious reader and an avid tennis player and made lifelong friends through the Hastings schools, tennis, and the League of Women Voters. She enjoyed traveling with her husband throughout the United States and Europe and was especially taken with Paris, the Swiss Alps, and Cape Cod. In 1995, Ellie and Dieter realized their dream of retiring to the Cape, settling in Barnstable Village. Sadly, Dieter passed away just three years later, but Ellie went on to live a rich life in Barnstable, establishing new friendships through her book club, her ladies' lunch group, and her volunteer work at the Sturgis Library, where she helped run the bookshop for over a decade. Her last 15 years were greatly enhanced by relationships with her longtime care providers, who became like an extended family to her and enabled her to remain in her beloved home until her death. Ellie was known for her intellectual curiosity, generosity, and frank conversation. She held strong opinions and was a creative thinker, developing signature sayings and personal philosophies that guided her own life and inspired those around her. Despite numerous health challenges in her later years, she maintained remarkable good humor and an indomitable positive attitude, 
finding endless delight in the comforts of her home, friends, and family, caregivers, her dog Nellie Bly, and a good cup of coffee. The family would like to express gratitude to all those who cared for Ellie, including her home care providers and Beacon Hospice, with special thanks to Ellie's niece Sally and her husband Stan. Burial will be private, and a memorial service will be held at a later date. In lieu of flowers, gifts in her memory may be sent to Beacon Hospice or the MSPCA of Cape Cod. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, How to Gently Decline Rekindling Attempts from Former Toxic Friend. Dear Carolyn, My best friend from high school and college and I drifted apart as young adults. As I moved on and formed new friendships, I realized just how toxic this former friend was for me. She could be so mean and belittling. I remember so many times when I felt so bad about myself because of something she did or said to me. My current friend group is supportive, kind, and loving to one another. I came to realize what it's like to have deep relationships with friends who truly care and would not purposefully be hurtful. On reflection, I don't dislike my former friend. We had good times, too. I realize my disappointment is more in myself, that I allowed myself to be a doormat, be bullied, and accept poor treatment. We're connected through social media. Recently, she stopped by my home unexpectedly. She saw me outside and we visited. Now she wants to go to lunch or coffee. I don't wish to rekindle this friendship. I'm good with the social media updates. We now live in the same town again, so we may see each other in person from time to time. Any advice on how to gently decline further contact? Signed, Former Friend. Dear Former Friend, because she was unkind to you, you have the best possible reason to give your friends a thanks-but-no-thanks answer that conveniently omits mention of the toxicity in your old relationship. You are being gracious about taking responsibility, but she was still the one choosing to be rough on a friend. A keep-it-superficial approach would also be easiest on you. Countless iterations of we've grown apart are at your disposal, all sanitized and ready to go. But if you want it, if this friend still matters to you as part of your life story, if you want a potentially more rewarding outcome than a clinical snip of the ties, then you will be honest about your reasons. Gently, sure. I've had some really nice friendships in the past few years, and they helped me see how unhealthy our dynamic was. Have examples ready that are as objective as possible under the circumstances. Remember when I, fill in the blank, your response was, fill in the blank, I felt, fill in the blank. At a minimum, this gives her the truth to do with as she sees fit. That can include her hurling it back at you, since that's always a risk. You can exit the conversation or relationship at this point, or any other, without obligation. She can also internally disagree, write you off, decide she's a better fit with more rough-and-tumble friends. She might surprise you with a sincere apology. But what she won't have to do is guess at your issue with her, and that bottomless speculation can be just as painful as the person's absence when a friendship comes to an end. The truth itself might not be gentle, but it's a gift. What she does with your gift has no maximum. Your honesty equips her to look inward, decide whether she's her problem or you are, 
and adjust accordingly if she hasn't already. There's nothing to stop her except herself from becoming the kind of friend to others that you have come to value. I present this neither as a duty nor as a guilt trip. If you are done, then you're done. Amen. But if the person you become is someone who wants to do more, then this is what you can do. A Place to Grab a Beer and Make Friends A Look at Local Breweries by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times In England, the pub is the watering hole of your community. From young to old, everyone gathers at the pub for a catch-up, a trivia night, or a meal with loved ones. Families, friends, and first dates all enjoying the communal atmosphere and a few drinks from the bartender. On the Cape, I've noticed a similar atmosphere present in breweries. Each week when I'm searching for events for our Best Bets column, I notice trivia nights, paint nights, and even music festivals being put on by breweries. So as the off-season is now in full swing, I decided to ask a few local breweries how they foster community year-round. Check out this wide range of activities and the breweries hosting them. It may be winter, but there is still plenty brewing on the Cape and Islands. Local breweries where community thrives year-round. The Knockabout Brewing Company in Mashpee. At Knockabout Brewing Company, having fun is in their foundation. According to co-owner Peter Murner, Knockabout is a saying one of his friends and co-founder's dad coined. Each night after returning from being a paper salesman in Boston, he would tell his kids to go put their knockabouts on, meaning time to take off the work and school wear and go play. Though time passed and after-school playtime turned into after-work activities, the principle of knockabout remained the same. We're just a place where people can come together, all ages, all backgrounds, have fun, enjoy a tasty beverage, something nice to eat, and have a fun activity, Murner said. At the end of the day, that's what this business has always been about, a community gathering place where people can catch up with old friends. In its seven-barrel tap room at 13 Lake Avenue, the Knockabout crew hosts events such as comedy shows and concerts and provides a friendly atmosphere for patrons to enjoy a beer, seltzer, and some pub grub food. During the day, we do some of those more family-friendly activities, Murner said. At night, it might be more of an R-rated comedy show with Lenny Clark, who's going to say some funny, crazy things that you definitely don't want your kids to hear. With 16 drafts on tap, hard seltzers, and 72 experimental beers created since opening in 2018, Knockabout has made it a priority to please everyone. We always want to have something for everyone available to drink, Murner said. The Provincetown Brewing Company in Provincetown. At Provincetown Brewing Company, they take pride in being a gathering place in their community. We really want to just create a warm, welcoming, inclusive environment, Chris Spaulding, director of pageantry for Provincetown Brewing Company, said. We really aim to be a safe space. Of a day, the brewery becomes a makeshift office, especially in the winter, for locals sipping on coffee and kombucha and sitting at their laptops. In the night, the brewery turns into a haven for fun weekly events like Trivia Night. They also throw staple events throughout the year, such as their amateur drag competition on August 5th, the brewery's birthday, where the winner becomes the face of their bearded mistress IPA for the year to follow. 
We try to give a place for folks to come, whether they're drinking beer or not, Spalding said. As a queer-owned and operated brewery, the folks at Provincetown Brewing Company also prioritize creating a space for the queer community in the industry and in their community at large. In many ways, people see breweries as straight spaces, and we're sort of subverting what a brewery can be while still welcoming everybody. Eric Borg, co-owner and director of marketing and events said, to kind of subvert the experience for them, where they're welcomed in, but also made aware of being in a queer space, to see them almost without fail start to understand it, get on the wavelength and enjoy its fun and gratifying. Along with creating a safe space, the brewery also gives back to its community through its policy of draftivism, where 15% of profits are donated to organizations that reflect its values. I think there's a humanitarian and cultural vibrancy that I think the space is able to get people through, Spalding said. It's a total sharing economy in that way. We're trying to uplift one another and support each other. Barnstable Brewing in Hyannis. Opened six years ago by husband and wife duo Peter and Ann Connor, Barnstable Brewing is run on the foundation of family. With one of their four children, Mark, working as one of three brewers and their other kids stopping in to help out on weekends, the Connors pride themselves on creating a family-friendly atmosphere. I remember when we would go out as a young family, Ann Connor recalled. It was hard to find places that we could bring our children and feel like we were welcomed with little kids. I've made it here for them. Throughout the year, the brewery hosts wedding receptions and events with local organizations in the tap room. But in the off-season, she said, they try and provide some fun events like paint nights and cooking classes to get people out of the house in the winter. We love when we see people that come in all demographics, families, single people, all sorts of different people, she said. They come in and next thing you know, we look around and see people enjoying a beer and talking with each other. There's nothing that we love more than to bring people together over a good beer. Bad Martha in Edgartown and East Falmouth. When owner Jonathan Blum was approaching retirement after working for Yum Foods, a major fast food conglomerate, he wanted to create a place where people could gather and enjoy good quality food and drinks. After finding an Amish building company to construct a post and beam barn in Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard, Blum opened the first Bad Martha in 2014, a place for people to try Bad Martha beer and experiment with their product, according to general manager Josh Flanders. Most people go, where did the name Martha come from? And then once we're like, we started it on Martha's Vineyard, it becomes very apparent, Flanders said. In 2018, the company expanded and opened up a larger location in East Falmouth, where they brew and run their canning line. For Flanders, the best part about the brewery experience is being able to try the classic, such as the 508 IPA and Mischievous Mermaid, and the experimental, like their Shark Bite Jalapeno Cucumber Lager. I think what's great about the brewery and the taproom experiences, you're always coming out with new beers, and there's always new things for people to try, he said. I think that's really the defining experience. With year-round events like weekly live music and one-off events such as Opry Ski Weekend, 
Bad Martha is one of the many breweries working to redefine what traditional communal spaces look like. Breweries have kind of transcended being known just for the product that they're serving, and they've kind of created this culture around them where they create events and push the boundaries of what a traditional business model looks like, Flanders said. You see a lot of interesting ways that breweries tend to collaborate with their community, create fun events, and become a host and a venue for things beyond the beer tasting experience. Cape Cod Beer in Hyannis. As the first microbrewery on the Cape, Cape Cod Beer in Hyannis made it their mission to become involved in their community. From hosting fundraisers with local organizations and businesses, like their upcoming Super Bowl soup competition on February 3rd, to throwing weekly shows and annual events like their Oyster Fest, they've made a name for themselves in their community. Being Cape Cod Beer, putting Cape Cod in your name, it was really important to us to stay involved said Leanne Anderson, Marketing and Events Manager for Cape Cod Beer. Their commitment to being involved translates into their brewing as well. With six year-round brews and a variety of specialty and seasonal beverages, Cape Cod Beer tries to produce products their community keeps coming back for. Obviously, the best part about our business is the beer itself, Anderson said. We've just put so much effort and work into making a great product that people can enjoy. Dance in Ohio, Broadway show starring autistic youth, has Cape Ties, by Kathy Strzydyskul, contributing writer to the Cape Cod Times. On their first Broadway opening night as co-producers, Isabeau Miller and Teddy Marsh sat next to a young woman and her mother watching their lives being portrayed on stage. Sitting in front of them were parents of one of the lead actors. That was their perspective in mid-December for the groundbreaking How to Dance in Ohio, a musical that tells the based-on-real-life story of seven young adults on the autism spectrum as they go through a universal rite of passage, preparing for their first formal dance. In a Broadway milestone, those characters are portrayed by performers who are also autistic. All are making their Broadway debuts in a feel-good show that Theater Mania called a game-changer for accessibility. Marsh and Miller, a mother and daughter who are Mashpee neighbors and entertainers themselves, said the opening night audience reaction was emotional, love-filled, and joyful. This is a historic moment for theater and for representation. The neurodivergent group has never been represented in this way, Miller said of both the show's story and cast. We knew this would be a family-friendly show that would allow some young people to see themselves portrayed on stage for the first time. The night was particularly affecting, she and Marsh said, when the young adults featured in the 2015 Peabody Award-winning How to Dance in Ohio documentary film joined the curtain call with the actors telling their stories. Documentary filmmaker Alexandra Shiva had focused on how people on the autism spectrum at a Columbus Family Counseling Center were different from each other and from neurotypical people in relating to the world and in social situations like a dance. In 2017, she approved two Ohio natives, composer Jacob Yandura, who has an autistic sister, and book writer and lyricist Rebecca Greer Melichek to musicalize her film. 
The project was championed and developed by legendary Broadway producer and director Harold Hal Prince until his death in 2019. After the pandemic, director Sammy Canold, whose brother is autistic, brought the How to Dance musical to its Syracuse, New York premiere in September 2022. Marsh and Miller's personal connection to autism is through cousins and the children of friends, but their interest in helping to bring How to Dance to Broadway is summarized in the mission for their new Songbird Productions company, to champion a generational legacy of authentic storytelling. Investing money and time was not just us being part of any Broadway show, but being a part of something that was going to change the landscape of theater, Miller said. Even if the show doesn't succeed financially, she calls it a win for elevating neurodivergent people on and off stage and notes, hopefully there comes a day when this isn't groundbreaking. Artistic pursuits are a family legacy. Miller and Marsh are part of an arts-oriented family that reaches back to vaudeville theater. Marsh has sung around the world and last fall released a Christmas album. Miller is a formerly Nashville-based pop musician and songwriter and entrepreneur who relocated with her musician husband, Sean Balin, and three sons to her childhood Cape Cod home during the pandemic. She teaches part-time at her alma mater of Berklee College of Music in Boston and is writing two musicals of her own. Marsh, Miller, and Balin have all performed locally at Katuit Center for the Arts, and 11-year-old son Beckham has performed in Cape Community Theater. Miller and Marsh got involved last August with bringing How to Dance to Broadway through Tom Dangora, Marsh's former Falmouth voice student who became a friend. He went on to produce award-winning off-Broadway shows that include long-running Musical the Musical and to produce and co-direct 2005's a Broadway Diva Christmas, in which Marsh co-starred. Dangora had suggested co-producing before, but How to Dance was the one that inspired Miller and Marsh to say yes. They've invested money, been part of twice-weekly national Zoom production meetings and training on neurodivergence, and worked to raise awareness and financing. Marsh traveled to watch the show develop in rehearsal and previews launching How to Dance in Ohio in New York City. The How to Dance performers were introduced nationally when they performed at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. That weekend, Marsh had helped get preview tickets for a family whose daughter, Ava, works as an intern on the Katuit Center's art bus and entertained at Marsh's six-year-old grandson's birthday party. Ava's mother, Susan Batista, said, how to Dance became part of an emotional six-month journey to get Ava, age 22, and on the autism spectrum, living on her own after graduating from Sandwich's Riverview School. When Ava was diagnosed as a baby, Batista said a Boston doctor told her that most autistic children had previously been institutionalized. The idea that they could be the stars of a Broadway show on the topic of autism just really made me realize how far we've come in a generation in accepting, celebrating, and understanding differences, she said, and how much hope there is for Ava and everyone who comes after who gets the diagnosis. It's a different world. Batista praises the show's discussion of 
and accommodation for neurodivergent people, including a quiet room for patrons who need a break. And Ava? From her perspective, it was, there are people like me, and they can be Broadway stars too, Batista said. I think it really makes people see there's no limit to what you can do. Marsh is working with a local mother active within the Cape Autism community and with State Senator Susan Moran, a Democrat from Falmouth, to provide similar opportunities to see how to dance for other local young people. Through being part of this show, Marsh said she learned so much about autism on the Cape. Before How to Dance, Miller's family had watched TV shows about neurodivergent people to gain a better understanding. And that's also what the Broadway show can offer to audience members. Well beyond that, though, she and Marsh emphasize, the show's story is relatable to anyone simply trying to understand life. It's a show about triumph over challenges. It's a show about families figuring out how to be the best mom and dad and son and daughter to one another, said Miller, who plans to take her 11 and 6-year-old sons to the Broadway show soon. It's about nonconformity and being open to the spaces that we all live in. This isn't a show about autism. This is a show about life, and it just happens that the people living the life in this show are autistic. We close today with a few poems from the column Cape Cod Poetry, Dead of Winter is a Time for Poets to Produce Beauty by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Nature inspires this month's winning poets in different ways, different places, and different times. Bradford Chase went to Chile looking for a poem, but the inspiration did not come until the very end of his visit in a restaurant that served primitive Chilean food. Rob Martin found inspiration on the Cape in a body of water, which, despite its icy grayness, evoked images of summer's past and the promise of those to come. Adam Sarlin paints a word picture of heritage museums and gardens in Sandwich, urging people to come and experience nature's artistry for themselves. Frank Smith's poem came from a memory sprung to life. You can almost feel the quiet place as Smith describes the physical sensation of being held just offshore by winds. Frank Smith says he is a retired business executive and consultant, as well as a blessed husband, father, and grandfather living in Wakefield. He enjoys spending time exploring and fishing on Cape Cod with his extended family who own a cottage in North Eastham. And here's his poem, Quiet Place. In the stillness of a windbreak on the far end of a pond, there is a space, and though the surface chops just a few yards beyond, it is a quiet place where thoughts can collect, where the water becomes crystal clear and the bottom feels closer and images reflect where the rhythm of the lapping shore slows the pace. In the stillness near the end, there is a space, a quiet place where thoughts collect and images reflect. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.